Hey everybody, welcome to the next episode of A Different Page. I'm so privileged today to speak to the wonderful Diana Reid. Diana, how are you going? I'm well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. My absolute pleasure. Um, Diana is a Sydney-based author, writer, theatre producer, and of course, the creator of the fabulous book, Love and Virtue. Um, Before I jump in, I'll just quickly say um, the interview will briefly and very gently touch on the topic of sexual assault, one of my questions towards the end. So I just wanted to like give a heads up for listeners. So before I get to the questions, wrote a musical. I have to ask about that. Tell us about the musical. Oh, yeah. Well, wrote is probably a generous word. So I um, so with um, a couple of friends from uni, we adapted Orwell's 1984 into a comedy musical. Um, I'm not a musical person at all. So I didn't write, I didn't do anything with the actual music. Um, a friend and I wrote the script and all the scenes um, and the lyrics. And then um, a different friend um, composed it. And we put it on at the New Theatre Newtown, which is like a small independent theatre in Sydney in um, January 2020, just before COVID, like, oh. cancelled theatre. <laughs> oh, how frustrating. And it was called 1984, is that right? Yeah, it's called 1984, exclamation mark, the musical, exclamation mark. <laughs> oh, sounds like it would have been so good. But I'm sure that even just being a part of that process, that is just so exciting. Like how, did you, how did you end up there? Um, it, were, it was uh, the, my co-writer, who was called Tom Davidson McLeod, it was his idea. He um, noticed that um, Orwell's 1984 was um, about to be in the public domain and he was like, I think that we could make this into a comedy. Um, so, yeah, I guess I was like, challenge accepted. Um, so we gave it a go. And we were very lucky that we got to put it on um, yeah, we, we put it on like when everyone was young and innocent pre-pandemic. Um, so we like just slipped in. <laughs> oh, of course. And it's so disappointing. That's so frustrating. And do you think you're going to um, put it on again now that everything's kind of starting to go back to normal? Um, I'm not sure. That's um, that, that's a very that's a kind of you to take such an interest. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I, I guess if the opportunity arose, we'd be like keen to put it on again because um, it was quite like well received in Sydney so um yeah if um if the people wanted it or anybody was interested in producing it then um we like wouldn't say no but we don't have any immediate plans to put it on yeah yeah of course brilliant well thanks for telling us a little bit about that that I just couldn't help myself I thought I have to know about that that's too awesome um Um, there's actually an album on Spotify if anyone's really interested you can google it I am I'm gonna be looking it up (laughs) brilliant I'll be looking that up for sure um so to begin I thought maybe if you could just give us a little elevator pitch of the book or a little summary that would be awesome Sure. So Love and Virtue is my debut novel and it is a, an Australian campus novel that looks at sex, power and consent through the eyes of two very different but equally brilliant young women as they navigate their first year of university. Brilliant elevator pitch. Short and sharp. I loved it. Yeah, that, that sums it up so well. Um, it's, it's such a brilliant story and it's so well written. I just have to say your writing is unbelievably great. I think I gasped. Oh, thank three you. pages in. <laughs> oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you so much. No worries. Well, one of my favourite things um, about your writing in this book is, I think, for want of a better phrase, the foreshadowing um, and the surprise sort of one-liner hints you drop. I just gasped throughout the book. Um, how do you nail the balance between hinting and not giving too much away? Yeah, that's such a good question. It's definitely something I'm conscious of. Um, I do think that hinting what's about to come is how you generate tension. 
I um I like saw an interview with um Donna Tart who is um who wrote The Secret History, which was one of the books that really informed Love and Virtue. It's a it's like a classic campus novel. Um, and in the interview, she said something about um, two people sitting at a table and then a bomb goes off isn't suspenseful at all but two people sitting at a table and you can see the bomb under the table and you don't and you can see it ticking but you don't know when it's about to go off that's suspense so um, I guess that is a like I think that's like a really good way of putting it this idea that if the the audience has to suspect that something's about to happen in order for them to feel any kind of suspense um, and that's what foreshadowing is. So um, I guess the main way that's achieved in this book is the um, prologue, like details an incident of um, like an ambiguously um, cons- maybe consensual, maybe not um, sexual encounter. And then um, the rest of the book kind of um, reveals who the participants are in that encounter and how different people perceive it. And yeah, so you're like presented with this kind of shady incident and then you have to like read on to find out who was involved and what really happened and whatever. Mm, yes, it's so true. It's such you're right, a brilliant way to generate tension. I love that illustration of the bomb under the table. That's what it was like for sure. And, and I think in the prologue, like, <laughs> we also mentioned the relationship that you hint to the relationship between the two characters. Actually, at the start of the prologue, you're like, oh, I think I know what this is about. And then at the end of the prologue, there's this one line and you're like, oh, okay. And that's brilliant. And then there's also moments where you'll drop a um like a comment from hindsight. I realized this. And that I love mm. that too. That was fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so it's written in the first person um, and the narrator is um, Michaela who is in her, she's she's narrating her experience of her first year at university and she kind of, um, you she narrates it like very much in the order that it happened and the reader um, learns about things in the order that she learned about them at the time. But she is writing from like five to ten years after, so I guess she kind of has like, the while she reveals you while she reveals to you things in the order that they happen so you like share her surprises mm. she does it with this kind of air of um I guess maturity and having learned from those experiences so she can like has the distance to see um whether or not they were harmful or whatever yes it's so true it's almost like you see a growth throughout her I think even one of the characters sees it in her as well which I, I love that too and mentions yeah. it um so this next question is a two-part question. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought, firstly, it would be awesome if you could explain the term virtue signaling to the listeners and its relevance to the book. And maybe secondly, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the difference between virtue signaling and being passionate about your opinions and what the difference is. Yeah, um, that's such a good question. So I think that um, so virtue signaling is um, a phrase um, for that defines um people like um undergoing certain action or doing doing things or saying things um at least in part to signal to everyone um what a good person they are um and so um it can also be it can also be like a mix of doing something because you genuinely are a good person and you like genuinely think that's a good thing to do um, but also there is definitely that part of it that is like facing an audience and wanting people to know that you've done this good thing. So I think um, like I think it's a term that kind of arose from social media. So like the classic example is people who like post on social media about um, their political opinions or like who they voted for or um, like, 
yeah, or posting about donating to a particular charity or something, um, it's like obviously there might be some um, sort of altruistic intentions there, like maybe you want to raise awareness, but also at least in part you just want people to know that you've done that and that you're good. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's so true. Um, and then I, I guess so then that kind of leads into the second part, which is like the difference between being um, virtue signaling and then like being um, actually just genuinely passionate. And I guess I suppose the difference is like one of motivation. So mm. I, my sort of suspicion, and I think the the reason that virtue signaling is sometimes criticised, is that if you are primarily motivated by the desire for like peer approval or attention, basically, mm. um, then perhaps that action isn't as pure or as good as if you were just motivated by a, a genuine desire to help other people and do the right thing. Um, and I guess that sort of intuition comes from the idea that um, actions are good because they are selfish. And so if you're doing it, sorry, actions are good because they are selfless. Mm-hmm. So if you're only doing it to get something for yourself out of it, then perhaps it is like less good. Um, I mean, that theory is very, um, that's like just one way of looking at what makes an action good. And there's obviously other ways to view it. Um, and I should also say, I don't think virtue signaling is like, the worst thing in the world like I think that if we live in a society where it's like cool to care about moral <laughs> issues then that's better than a society where people don't feel pressured to virtue signal of course yeah that's so true and I think um and there's probably a difference between um as you're saying is uh, so I think maybe a good characteristic of that is um people that who are virtuous virtue signaling probably with the wrong motives could even look like I think maybe in the book one of the characters is obviously like this um the constant dropping in of the virtues they're, they're re- re-establishing the morals in every conversation of or or trying to I guess put your morals and others constantly rather than an overflow of passion it's a continuous mention um or you know someone who posts on social media who's like oh everyone contributed to this charity I've started us off with twenty thousand yeah. dollars but you guys continue <laughs> or that's probably well, and I guess, yeah no and I guess the difference is like is it about is it is is it about your values and your morals and this like um, pursuit of goodness or is it just about you and how you want to appear? Um, and I think that sometimes it can be harmful when um, like serious political issues and beliefs are used as like window dressing for someone's personality. Absolutely, especially for the people in question of that issue. Um, and particularly if the person themselves aren't, aren't the people in question as well. I think that can be really, can be really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so fascinating. I love that. Um, so in the book, the protagonist attends this philosophy class, which beautifully mirrors the story, which I loved how you did that. Um, what would you say would be the philosophical question you wanted readers to ask themselves after reading the book? Um. Yeah, so they, yeah, so the, the um, two protagonists, um, Michaela and Eve, are both major in philosophy at uni. That's like what they study. And yeah, as you say, they um, do this philosophy class, which is just kind of like an introduction to ethics. Um, so the philosophical question I wanted to raise is like a, a very big one, very broad um, and probably unanswerable. Um, and that is basically just what is a good person? And um, is there a difference between being a good person and just looking like a good person? Um, And I think that's a question I wanted to explore um, because I think it kind of 
came out of my experiences at uni where, um, like the characters in the book, I studied philosophy. Um, they're not me, though. It's like it's very fictional, but it's informed by my life. So, um, yeah, I studied philosophy and I kind of, I felt like when I was studying at the end of every subject, I was always like less sure about right and wrong than I had been at the start. And like the more I dived, the more I engaged with it and the more I read like both sides of an argument, just the more confused I would become. And I'd be like, gosh, it's so hard to decide. Um, and then I, on campus and then on social media, I felt like we were constantly being told in very black and white terms what it meant to be a good person and what was good enough and what was subpar. Um, and so I guess this book is like an attempt to address that and to query like whether it is actually so easy to make black and white moral judgments. Mm, yeah, that's so true. And are people like, you know, um, does everyone have black and white or is there a, a wholeness to a person? I think also maybe what I thought from one of the characters too, who was really big on the virtue ceiling with the wrong motives probably, um, was <laughs> were they making the other person feel like that person wasn't a good person, that that person mm-hmm. wasn't well-rounded. Like I'm um, not seeing the wholeness of that person. I think there was a line actually that was fantastic. You said um, you're talking about a conversation between two of them and, and you said um, to stand firm and not, not be budged. What was the point of the conversation? And I thought it was a really good illustration mm-hmm. of what it looks like when someone's not seeing you as a whole rounded person. They're seeing you as you're either on the topic or you're not. Totally. Yeah. And I do think that there's, um, yeah, and I think it, it, that's also something to be wary of. Like, just because you disagree with someone, um, does that mean that you can extrapolate from like one difference of opinion that they are a good or a bad person? You know, and like, I think that is something that we tend to do. I know I'm guilty of that sometimes. Like, if, yeah, if there's someone has a difference of opinion with you, then you, it's like easy to write them off. Um, and I think that maybe, um, yeah, I guess, yeah, that was like my takeaway from philosophy was that like, it's just so hard. And um, I'm like very, I guess I'm sort of wary of um, making really um, firm um, judgments about someone's goodness. Having said that, though, I also accept that like, if we didn't have the capacity to make firm judgments, then like society would never change. So um, yeah query whether it's helpful to like sit around all the time complaining about how complex everything is like at some point you've got to just make a decision and do something about it yes how long yeah how long can you ask those questions for before there's using it for action and they're not sitting there too long (laughs) it's really really well put that's like the classic criticism of philosophy which is that everyone's just like sitting around in armchairs thinking about problems but never actually finding a solution so I do um, have a lot of sympathy for like the character in the book who's probably more virtue signaling is also the character that like enacts the most social change and like arguably leaves the world a better place for um, all of her black and white beliefs. So um, yeah, I hope that's also a tension that I've explored. Mm, no, absolutely. It's so true. Cause you did find yourself thinking that you thought, oh, this person is super annoying and, and but also really um, active, but even the actions are bold and whether they're the good the right actions are not she's taking action so you do think that throughout the book it's it's super fascinating um so I thought let's talk about power and consent two big themes in the book um what in your opinion is the relationship between power and consent so I suppose I think that what I was trying to do in this book is look at what um consent means in lots of different contexts and um how um and so not just in a sexual context, but what consent means gen- generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I suppose that that kind of uh, answers the question about what, um, yeah, what the relationship is between consent and power. Um, and so I suppose 
the way I kind of tease out consent in the book is this idea that um, consent matters because it um, if you have the ability to consent to um, your actions and um, like the the way you present to other people and also the narrative around who you are and um, the way you're perceived, then basically you have autonomy. So um, conversely, if you can't consent or if you have consent taken away from you, then you lose something of your, like you lose freedom um, because you lose the ability to make choices about your own life. Um, so I think that if you um, if you have consent or, if, yeah, if you're like given the opportunity to consent, then that is very empowering um, and that gives you power. And then conversely, um, your capacity to consent can be vitiated by people who have more power over you. So, like, I think, for example, in the book, one of um, the big themes is like um, the one of the main characters experiences um, a, a sort of event that is like perhaps sexual assault, but she's not sure. And a lot of the book is other people telling her how she should feel about that event. Um, and so um, I guess it's kind of exploring that idea of um, consent, not only just to the act itself, as in sexual, like the sexual consent, but also consent to tell stories about your own life and like the consent to um, be able to be the narrator of your own experiences and to decide what things mean for you. And I think that the um, one of the ways that power relates to consent is that I think people who have more power are the people whose like stories get told and get listened to and theirs can often become the defining narratives, um, which like, uh, yeah, which can then go on to sort of vitiate other people's capacity to, um, yeah, to consent. <laughs> mm. So the powerful people it's, uh, can sometimes remove consent, um, not only in the circumstances and situations, but also of the narrative and of the autonomy and the, the story. And, yeah, yeah um, exactly. Great summary. It's fantastic. Now, I want to further on that question, but I just want to, the listeners, people who are listening right now, I'm going to gently touch on some spoilers and I'm just going to just very gently because I don't want to fully spoil it, but I just wanted to talk a little bit more about that. In the story, um, as you're saying, someone um, experiences what they could be a sexual assault and somebody else reports it and shares it, um, shares a story as their own and basically takes action on that narrative. Now, we both know that that's not okay. Um, I guess I was going to say, can you explain a little bit more why, but you kind of already discussed it. I guess I would probably just say, in my opinion, I think it's it's probably just adding to the non-consensual vulnerability of the person. They've already been robbed of choice and it's just taking away a further choice and it's kind of counterproductive. Um, yeah. Yes. You, any more that you wanted to say on that topic? Yeah, exactly. And, like, no, I think that's a really good summary. And obviously, like, I'm not trying to equate the two um, instances of her consent being violated, um, like, um, yeah, and I, nor am I saying that, like, one's, um, you know, that they're equally harmful or, like, making a comment about which is more harmful. But, yeah, I just think what I was trying to demonstrate there is that um, any any instance where your consent to um, something very personal, whether it be, like, your bodily autonomy or a story about you um, being presented in the public, um, any time that kind of consent is vitiated, um, it's harmful and it, it it's a violation. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's, um, and I suppose the reason that I did that was to try and tease out 
why consent matters. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't want people to think, oh, well, consent matters because everyone says it does or like <laughs> consent matters because um, I hold a particular set of beliefs, therefore I should also hold this one. Like it matters because it goes to autonomy and um, therefore it's important all the time. Mm. Yeah, that's so well said. It's so true. Yeah, and it, it's just so well illustrated the story and I feel like the, the themes of power and consent and they, they come through in so many layers. There's, and as you, as you said, there's a lot of examples of different types of consent in different situations and different relationships and friendships. And um, it was really interesting to see it illustrated in multiple ways. So I was loving the layers. Um, okay. is, no worries. Well, this is a, a couple more questions on, on some spoilerish topics. Um, the way Michaela feels about Eve. Oh my God, the passion, the hate, the love. Oh, I just was really, I just, it was such a brilliant um, articulation of that feeling. Did you draw upon personal experience to write that feeling or did you just explore it theoretically? Um, so I guess it was twofold. So um, I did in part draw on some personal experiences. I obviously like all the characters are fictional, but I guess I have had that experience. Like I think a lot of women have, especially at a particular age where you're like not really sure of yourself. And then you find someone who seems like the kind of woman you would like to grow up to be. And you just really like latch on and um, become obsessed with them. Um, and I think that it, it's funny because when I, when I was writing it, I sort of thought, so, so the narrator is quite open about hating her sort of former best friend from university who um, she like admired a lot and who was very formative in her life. But you know, from the start that they're no longer friends anymore. And she's very explicit about the fact that she hates her. Um, <laughs> and uh, when I was writing it, I sort of thought, oh, like this is so bad for the sisterhood. Like maybe I'm just outing myself as really toxic um, for like <laughs> hating other women and perceiving them as threats. Um, but it's been really interesting because since the book came out, I think a, so many women have said that that female friendship and that toxicity is what resonated with them. Um, and I think it's, it, I'm sure it's like an age and stage thing. Like I think fortunately it's something that a lot of people grow out of. Um, but I do think that we can, a lot of women can empathize with that experience of kind of like defining yourself in relation to and in competition with some of your peers. Um, oh, yeah. And being pitted against each other as we, as us women have been taught to. Well, that yeah, that's exactly right. Like, obviously, it's in part a product of, um, yeah, like, um, it's partly a product of, I guess, patriarchy, um, to put it bluntly. Like, in the book, Michaela and Eve, one of the ways that they compete is um, to, like, get good marks. Um, and they're very academically competitive. And I think that that's sort of, it's kind of implied that that's a product of the fact that they're studying philosophy, which is, like, traditionally very male-dominated. Um, and they, so they don't really have an interest in competing with the boys in their class like I think they sort of see themselves as taking up this limited space for women so they want to be the best girl in the room um, rather than just the best um, I would also say though I think I was also partly influenced by um, other novels so like I, I sort of observed that female friendship was like having a moment in literature so um, two of the big ones that influenced me were the um, Eleanor Ferranti novels like my brilliant friend is the first one there's four of them um and then the other one was swing time by zadie smith and um both of those novels track like a, a very formative very competitive friendship that um and actually both of them are written in the first person looking back on this friendship that's now over um but 
they, but that like completely changed the narrator's life. Mm. Oh, I love that. So well articulated too. And, and I wondered as well with that feeling of not only that experience of that sort of patriarchal pity against each other and an academic com- com- competitiveness, which I think happens at uni with all genders anyway, but I wondered too how much it was motivated by love. It was Would you say she was deeply in love with Eve or was it like she was kind of, the main complex was the competitive thing and then on top of that she was also in love with her or it was all I hate you because I love you kind of thing? Yeah, it's a um, that's a great question. I think she probably was in love with her. Mm-hmm. Um, she says as much in the, so right at the start when she's talking about how much she hates her, she says she kind of concludes that the, the fact that she cares so much and the fact that after all these years she still hates her so much proves that she must be a bit in love with her. Um, and I think there's something in that, this idea that when you feel like so strongly about people and when you, when you care so much, um, then there's like a kind of love there. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I think she does have that kind of confused, sort of um, very passionate, almost adolescent feeling of not knowing whether she wants to like be with Eve um and um because she loves hanging out with her and she finds her so beautiful and um their like conversations are intoxicating or whether she wants to just be Eve and um some of the tension derives from kind of trying to almost take her place and um like become more like her and um yeah so yeah I guess it's that question of yeah whether you want to be with someone or whether you want to like replace them (laughs) yes it's almost like as well Eve had that um she had the power and she had the consent and the things that Michaela had been kind of a little bit stripped of or or maybe was tossing up whether you know that was the case but um yeah I think Eve yeah it was definitely it had that it flirted with the bisexuality thing of is it yeah do you want to I think what's the classic line do you want to be her or do you want to be with her but it did remind me of that a little bit um, but it was so it was so organic as well that relationship and I was like oh are they gonna keep walking up or I was thinking about heaps um, but yeah it did it did I love the sexuality exploration in that thanks yeah and I think um I think that also the their sort of sexuality is or their exploration of that sort of side of their friendship is kind of um frustrated by being in this like very um kind of patriarchal environment where um, Michaela especially feels like male attention um, and approval and sexual interest from men is really important and like is an endorsement of her as a person um, and so I think that she spends a lot of the book like pursuing men um, because she thinks that if like powerful men are attracted to her that proves something about her worthiness mm-hmm. um, and I suppose there's like a question there about maybe if they like we're in a less kind of rigidly heteronormative environment, maybe um, she would have just like sought Eve's approval alone and like not needed anyone else's. Yeah, that's so true actually. That would have looked a little bit different in a different sort of culture. Mm, so mm. good. And and I think just lastly, as far <laughs> as romances go with Michaela, when I'm reading Balthazar's character, I'm like, if I'm Michaela, I'm dating Balthazar. I'm like, he is so exciting and fun. <laughs> but you could feel it was a friendship from her the whole time. She, she didn't think twice about it. Like you could not twice. She, obviously she recognised there were things going on, but I'm sure that he's a fan favourite. Is that the case? Or- <laughs> yeah, he is. That's, that's so nice of you to say. So, um, yeah, it's been really funny, like, since the book came out, because obviously it's um, it's a contemporary fiction and 
it's set at a university and it's about young people. So um, there's been like a lot of discussion among my group of friends about like who different characters are based on. And I've like been at several events where I've like had multiple of my male friends fighting over like who inspired Balthazar. Um, and I think that's like, that's really nice and flattering. And I guess that's a testament to like what a legend he is that lots, lots of people want to claim to be him. Yes. Oh, that, that, that is such a testament to the character because it's true. He's so, he's so charismatic and, um, and so witty. Like, oh, I'd love to have that bit. But I'm sure it also, it was actually a good description of a uni character. That's so someone you'd meet at uni. Who's it, it, it like studying arts or philosophy or that same sort of world as you meet the charismatic, super witty, really intelligent. That's yeah. It's just it was just fantastic and and um, okay. but it made sense that they didn't get together because it was like she hasn't she she's not thinking about him, you know. Um, and she was so also her heart was you know with other people as well. But no, um, yeah, and I sort of I wanted um, Balthazar is like. Um, he was my sort of attempt to demonstrate, I guess, a different kind of goodness. Like I think if you sort of see Eve as being a good person in that she like is very vocal and she enacts a lot of social change, um, I think with Bath I was trying to demonstrate a more kind of interpersonal ideal of what it can mean to be a good person. Mm -hmm. And part of that is like that he has this very unselfish love for Michaela. And so when he never puts any pressure on her and he doesn't want to, she doesn't, he doesn't feel any ownership over her and um, he just puts her interests before her, his own. So even though he's in love with her and he would obviously like ideally like to be with her, he can see that that's not what she's interested in. And so he doesn't even like, he, he doesn't, he barely even raises it. Um, yes. And so I think that is like a, um, yeah, so I, it was kind of important to me that they ended up in this really nice platonic place because um that's part of why he's such a good person that he um, puts her needs before his own wants. Mm, and a really true representation of true consent where they, he read, he, his responsibility read between the lines that he's, he knows she's not totally. interested. He's not even going to, going to try. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. He like reads the room and he's like, I know the answer is going to be no. So I'm not even going to put you in that situation where you like have to say it out loud. <laughs> yes, exactly. And I think he also was really good at um, supporting her through that, the story and the assault and well, the, you know, the question mark. And I think, um, which should have to be an assault, but I think the way he supported her and the contrast between his support versus Eve's support, it was like, this is how you, you're, you're an activist. Is it actually, you see your friends, you bring them empathy and support and you have the conversations and it's a private, um, it's a private thing. And I, I thought, yeah, the way he demonstrated it was just a really good illustration of this is what a friendship looks like, a friend in this moment and in an assault context. Totally. Yeah, I, that's so true. Like he's, um, and he's always, um, whenever she's like disempowered, his focus is always to give power back to her. Like he always says, you know, what do you want to do next? And yeah, and what do you think about it? And yeah, yeah, we love that stuff. He's a nice boy. All day. It was just so good. Well, thank you so much for coming on here today. I really appreciate it. Oh, no, not at all. Thank you so much for having me. It's, um, yeah, great to talk about it. I'm, I'm glad I've got another Balthazar fan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there'll be very, very many. And, um, and so for people listening, where can we get your book? Where's the best place to, to buy it? Um, it's available in um, all good bookstores. So I would recommend supporting whichever your local independent is. Um, just yeah. pop down and, um, yeah, support small business, especially in the lead up to Christmas. Yes, of course, especially up to Christmas and post-COVID, definitely. Well, that's it, guys. You've heard it. That's Diana Reed, Love and Virtue. And 
Thanks so much for listening and thanks so much again, Diana. Listening to a different page, spin up series of the words in your podcast. The song belongs to the artist. My name is Josie Layton, and you can find out more about me and this podcast at my Instagram page, Josie Layton. So that's J O S I E L A Y T O N. Thanks, guys.